So we've been looking at the incarnation in our Advent series, 3D Jesus, three-dimensional Jesus, and we've been looking at what John means in John 1.14 when he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen that Jesus was a human being just like us, that his breath smelled in the morning when he woke up. He had crust in his eyes. He would get headaches. He would stub his toe. He's just like us, sin being the only exception. We have seen that Jesus never sinned, ever, ever, ever. However, though he never sinned, Jesus did spend his whole life resisting temptation. But how was Jesus tempted? In what ways was he tempted? Was he tempted in every exact way that I've ever been tempted? What does it mean that Jesus, the God-man, could actually be tempted to sin? Could Jesus have actually sinned? I mean, is that even possible? And that's what we'll think about today. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. If you're visiting, we're in the middle of a a Christmas Advent series looking at what it was like that Jesus was a human being. And today, we're in the deep end. I mean, there's like the deep end of the Bible, the deep end of Christianity, and then there's like the deep end. And today, we're in the deep end, okay? So stretch your brains now if you want. Uh, What we're going to see is that Jesus experienced the strongest and most relentless barrage of temptations ever devised and schemed up and dreamed up by the devil. It was nonstop. Jesus lived every waking moment of his life resisting temptation and obeying God. And he did it for us and for our salvation so that we could be with him forever. What love. In the incarnation Jesus experienced the never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever temptations of Satan, and he never gave in. It's incredible. We should be awestruck by this truth. Wow, Jesus could drive through a roundabout and not sin. That's amazing. He spent his entire life resisting temptation. He never got a break from suffering, never got a break from temptation. Because he came to do what Adam did not do in the garden. He came to be the second Adam. He came to obey the law of God on our behalf. And he went through hell on earth in order to give us, people like us, if you can believe it, to give people like us access into his presence, into God's presence, so that we could enjoy a little bit of heaven on earth right now and then eventually forever on the new earth when Jesus comes back in his second advent to make everything new and to make all the sad things come untrue. Okay, to Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 15 and hear the word of the Lord. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the preacher of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus can actually sympathize with our weaknesses, with our struggles, with our temptations. You may be tempted to think that because Jesus is the glory, infinitely glorious, eternal Son of God who never sinned, you might be tempted to think that he wouldn't be able to sympathize with you. You may be tempted to think that he can't understand your struggles, and you may think that, but you would be wrong. 
Just because Jesus never sinned does not mean that he does not know what it is like to struggle with temptation as a human being. Verse 15 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are. And so Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted to sin. And those temptations came from outside himself. They didn't come from within. He didn't have a sin nature that was drawn to evil like we do. These temptations came from outside him. And yet, he never sinned. And that makes him a great high priest for great struggling sinners like us. So what does it mean that Jesus spent his whole life resisting temptation? How was he tempted? In what ways was he tempted? What does it mean that Jesus, the God-man, could be tempted to sin? And could Jesus have actually sinned? Is that even possible? Is it possible that Jesus could sin? Well, when we picture Jesus being tempted in every way that we are tempted, we have to picture Jesus being genuinely tempted to sin, but actually being genuinely unable to sin. All right, let me say that again. When we picture Jesus being tempted in every way that we are tempted, we have to picture Jesus being genuinely tempted to sin by things outside himself, but actually being genuinely unable to sin. Another way to say that, uh, that Jesus could not sin, and it's a word you'll see in theological books or maybe even in your Bible in the study notes if you read about this, it's the word impeccable. You've probably heard the term impeccable before, but perhaps not in the sense that we're going to talk about today. Typically, when we use the word impeccable to describe something that is perfect, we say something like this, that tri-tip was impeccable, or she's a clean freak, and her home was impeccable. Or, Pastor Benji's sermon about Jesus being impeccable was downright impeccable. Maybe not the last example, but that's typically how we use the word impeccable. But in theological circles, if you read books about the humanity of Jesus, if you read books about the incarnation, or maybe in your your study Bibles, you'll hear the word impeccable used to describe the fact that Jesus could not have sinned. Our English word impeccable comes from the Latin word peccare, which means to sin, and the Latin word in, I-N, which means not. So impeccable means to not sin. We see this with other words that have the prefix. When you see an English word, usually it has the prefix I-M or I-N on the beginning. That means not, and so it negates the word that follows. So when you see the word infinite, it means not finite. When you see the word immortal... It means not mortal. When you see impeccable, it means not sinning. So when we speak of the impeccability of Jesus, we are speaking about the fact that Jesus could not have genuinely sinned. But at the same time, we also affirm that his temptations were very much real. So Jesus was genuinely tempted to sin, but he was actually genuinely unable to sin. Does your brain hurt yet? Merry Christmas and bless your heart. I told you we are in very, very deep waters today. But even though we're in very, very deep waters, we need to swim here. Remember, Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, and those two natures are united together in one person. That means when Jesus was tempted to sin, he was tempted in his humanity from outside himself 
As a man, he was tempted. But in his divine nature as God, he was not tempted because James 1.13 says that God cannot be tempted with evil. So when Jesus was tempted, he was tempted in his human nature from outside himself. But how do we account for the reality of the genuineness of Jesus' temptations if we also say that he couldn't sin? If he could genuinely be tempted to sin, how do we relate that to the fact that he could not sin? How does it work? Well, Orthodox Christianity holds that the two natures of Jesus, God and man, are united in one person. We cannot divide the two natures. As theologian Herman Bavink said, God himself would have to be able to sin, which is blasphemy. Or the union between the divine and human nature is considered breakable and in fact denied. So we can't say that God could have sinned because that's blasphemy, because God cannot sin. But we also don't want to divide the union of the two natures, God and man, in Jesus. We don't want to divide him into God and then man. We must keep those two natures in union. So what we are left with is this. Jesus did not sin. Jesus genuinely could not have sinned because he was impeccable, but he was also genuinely tempted. So we must say those three things when we speak of Jesus' temptation. He did not sin. He could not have sinned, but he was genuinely tempted to sin. Now, does that satisfy all of our curiosities? Does it answer all of our questions? Can you wrap up that theological concept and put a pretty little bow on it and leave it in your driveway for your spouse to walk to on Christmas morning? Probably not. In fact, conservative scholars are split on this issue. There are some very well-respected theologians that I look up to, and they differ from me. I don't mind that they're wrong. That's okay. That's what they have to deal with. But I look up to some mentors of mine, and we don't agree on this. Some conservative theologians think that Jesus could have sinned in his human nature. So we have to recognize that we are fallen sinners trying to understand a great mystery, and that's what it is. It's a mystery. What you do with mystery is you don't try to solve it. You marvel at it. You worship. You adore him. You're in awe of him. Jesus isn't a mystery to be solved. What he is is a sympathetic high priest for real sinning sinners like us. And that's the big takeaway for us today is that he understands. He knows what it feels like to be tempted so that when you're tempted and you blow it, like we all do every week, every day, you can go to him and he can say, I understand. I was tempted too. But how did he resist temptation? How did he resist if he did? And he did. Here's how we may be tempted to answer the question. How did Jesus resist temptation? We, want to, we may be tempted to say it this way. Jesus could not sin because he was God. And Jesus did not sin. Because he was God. We may be tempted to say that the reason Jesus could not sin and did not sin was because he was God. And that answer might keep the headaches away. But we must remember that there is actually a distinction between why Jesus could not sin and why he did not sin. We may be tempted to think that the reason why Jesus 
did not sin was because he relied on his divine nature as God to not sin. As if his divine nature kind of kicked into gear when he was being tempted and kind of shoved his human nature out of the way and said, step back, I'm taking over here. But that's not the case. Jesus resisted temptation. He always obeyed his Father in heaven. And he did this through the resources afforded him in his humanity as a man. And those resources were namely the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Jesus did not resist temptation because his divine nature as God kind of gave him power. Like, oh, human nature, you're looking weak. Let me come along and, and strengthen you. Instead, Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit to resist temptation in his human nature. He was empowered by the Spirit to say no to sin, to temptation. And he was empowered in his human nature as a man. It was with the Word of God and by the power of the Spirit of God that Jesus resisted temptation in his human nature. In other words... The common evangelical belief is this. If Jesus could not sin because he was God, then the reason he did not sin must also be because he was God. Maybe tempted to think that way. He could not sin, and the reason he could not sin is because he could not sin because he was God, and the reason he did not sin is because he was God. Because his God part, if you will, kept him from sinning. But that's not the case. Instead, Picture Jesus resisting temptation, not because he relied on his divine nature, but because he relied on the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And isn't that how we see him in Scripture when he's tempted by the devil in the desert? Who leads him out into the desert? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit is leading him. He goes into the desert where he is tempted and he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. Every single time the devil came, he came back with, it is written. In the gospel accounts, that's what Jesus says. He actually quotes the book of Deuteronomy to fight temptation. Imagine that. Imagine quoting the book of Deuteronomy to resist temptation. You can do that. When's the last time you used the book of Deuteronomy to say no to sin and temptation? That's what Jesus did. And it was the Spirit of God that enabled him and empowered him to. All of his life was empowered by the Spirit. So rather than living out of his own divine nature as God, getting power from the God part of him, if you will, rather than that, he became a man, a human being, and he accepted in real time, in a human body, he accepted a role of dependence on the Holy Spirit. So marvel at him, Grace. What an amazing humility he showed. He was fully God, the eternal Son of God. And yet he accepted living as a man, dependent upon the Holy Spirit each day, each moment of his life. What humility for him to condescend, to come save people like us. What love. Marvel today that Jesus experienced the never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever temptations of Satan, and he never gave in. He could not sin. As an old theologian, William Plummer, said, it was not possible for Christ to sin because it was not possible to subvert God's system of mediation. He couldn't sin because he came to be a mediator between us and God, to be our high priest. That plan could not be derailed. 
God's eternal plan could not be stopped. And Jesus could not sin because he is God. As Blair Smith says, the second person of the Trinity assumed our human nature. That nature doesn't act because natures don't act, persons do. The second person of the Trinity is the one who acts. If he were to sin in the capacity of his human nature, it would mean a member of the Trinity would sin, which is impossible for the Holy One of God. Okay, let's catch our breath. Let's get our bearings, kind of, you know, pull in our hurting brains. Why is it that Jesus could not sin? Answer, because he is God. Why is it that Jesus did not sin? Answer, because he was a man just like you and me, who used the resources given to him to resist temptation, namely the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And so here's what we have to say about the temptations of Jesus. Jesus could not sin because he was God. But Jesus did not sin because as a human being, he relied on the Spirit of God and the Word of God and not his divine nature. Or you may picture it this way. Let me give you an illustration. Bruce Ware uses this illustration in one of his books. I'm indebted to him for it, but it might help you understand why uh, the answers to those questions are different, why he did, why he couldn't, and why he didn't. So imagine a swimmer swimming in the ocean, trying to beat the world record for longest distance swam by a human being in the ocean. Now, I don't know why anybody would want to do that. I got a million other things I can do with my life that I'd like to do, but there's someone out there, this is their thing. I want to swim the longest length of the ocean by a human being. That swimmer knows that it is a possibility that his muscles will cramp up, and therefore, it's a possibility that if his muscles cramp up, he might drown. So the swimmer's friends decide, hey, we're going to ride in a boat behind you as you swim. That way, if you cramp up, if your muscles cramp up, we can reach down and save you from drowning. Now, why is it that the swimmer could not drown in the ocean? Why is it that even if the swimmer's muscles cramp up, he's not going to drown? And the answer is the boat. His friends in the boat are going to ensure that he is not going to drown. Okay, now another question. Why is it that the swimmer did not drown? The answer is not the same. The reason the swimmer did not drown is not because of the boat. The reason the swimmer did not drown is precisely because he kept on swimming. So if you came up to the swimmer who broke the world record and said, I know you did not drown because the boat with your frids on it was right behind you, the swimmer would tell you the reason I did not drown is because I kept swimming. The reason the swimmer could not drown is because there was a boat with his friends on board. They would have reached out and saved him if he started to drown. But the reason the swimmer did not drown it's because he kept on swimming. He kept on kicking his legs and moving his arms. And so, did the boat full of friends comfort the swimmer? Was it a comfort to the swimmer, trying to break the world record, knowing that his friends were close by in a boat? Was that a comfort to him? We may be tempted to say, yeah, that's a comfort. The friends in the boat seemed like they would be a comfort to the man. After all, if he cramps up, they're there to save him. But the reality is that the boat full of friends is not a comfort to the swimmer. The swimmer's goal is not to keep from drowning. 
Otherwise, they would be a comfort. If he's like, I'm going to get out in the ocean and I don't want to drown and you're behind me, I'm comforted because you're going to save me. Okay, that's not, the swimmer's goal is not to keep from drowning. His goal is to set the world record for swimming the longest distance in the ocean by a human being. The boat full of friends is not a comfort because if the swimmer has to rely on his friends in the boat, then that means he can't break the world record. So the presence of the boat full of friends ready to save him doesn't comfort the swimmer in the least. If he so much as touches the side of the boat, then it's over. So he cannot rely on a boat full of friends in order to set the new world record. And that's a picture of how it was with Jesus. Jesus had a divine nature as God. And as God, he was all-powerful, omniscient, omnipotent, all of his attributes. But Jesus did not rely on those attributes. He did not rely on his deity He did not rely on his own power as God to overcome temptation. He did not rely on the boat, if you will. In other words, it was not necessarily a comfort to his human nature that he was almighty God. That didn't bring a comfort to Jesus and his humanity. Because Jesus knew that he had to overcome temptation as a man, as a human being, and not simply as God so that he could be a sympathetic high priest for sinners like us when we blow it. Yes, Jesus had the boat of his divine nature, if you will. He had power as God. But the minute he relies on his own power, his own divine nature, then it's over because he would fail to pass the test as a man, as a human being, as the second Adam. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says in verse 15, look again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So if Jesus could have relied on his own deity as God to help him resist temptation, then he could not be a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and our struggles. Because Jesus faced temptation as a human being just like you and me, that means... He can help us. He can help us when life is hard. He can help us when we're being tempted. He can help us when we want to quit. He understands what it's, what it's like to resist temptation as a man, as a human being. And that makes him a merciful and faithful and sympathetic high priest that you can go to. Because he was tempted just like we are, he is able to help us. And he helps us with compassion oozing out of him. Because he would say, I've been there and done that. I know what you're experiencing. I know what you're feeling. The preacher of Hebrews and the preacher of this sermon wants you to know that Jesus experienced the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever temptations of Satan. And he never gave in. His whole life was spent saying no. He never got a break from suffering, never got a temptation, a a break from temptation. Leon Morris is a New Testament scholar. He has rightly noted that sinlessness heightens, not lowers, the force of temptation. It's a profound thought. Here's what he says. The man who yields to a particular temptation has not felt its full power. He has given in while the temptation has yet something in reserve. Only the man who does not yield to temptation, 
who, as regards that particular temptation, is sinless, knows the full extent of that temptation. So you and I have been barraged by temptations from the devil, and we've all given in. So even though that temptation at times is so very real, we don't know that temptation to the full extent because we give in, don't we? But not Jesus, not once. He knows the full extent of not just one temptation, but of all the temptations that the devil could come at. Jesus faced all the reserves of the devil. He faced the strongest and most relentless barrage of temptations ever devised by the devil. He resisted lust, and it came back stronger. He resisted bitterness, and it came back stronger. He resisted anger, and it came back stronger. He resisted worry, and it came back stronger. And every time he resisted it, it came back stronger and stronger, the full force of that temptation. Whereas we just give in, and we're like, whew, oh man. And he resisted, and he overcame, and he did that for you. Every single time he said, no, he was thinking of you. You were on his heart for 33 years. For 33 years, it's like, it is written, I will not do it because of that person and that person and that person because I'm coming to save them and I cannot blow it. He fully obeyed the law of God on our behalf in order to give us as a gift his perfect life, to give us his righteousness. But do you ever give in to sin, whatever it is, knowing that at least there's some relief in that you don't have to fight it anymore for a while? I do. Isn't that one of the reasons that we give in to sin? Sometimes we just give in to sin because we're tired of resisting. We get tired of fighting. We just give in because we're tired of the battle. Now think about Jesus He never once gave in, never once had the experience of relief whereby he gave in to sin so that he wouldn't have to fight it anymore. It was war 24-7 for him, nonstop battling the forces of evil. And he resisted by the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. So he spent his whole life quoting scripture and saying, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. He spent his whole life quoting the Old Testament scriptures. And when Jesus got to the end of his life on the cross, what does he say in John 19, 30? He says, it is finished. Tetelestai. He says, it is finished on the cross precisely because he said it is written his entire life. So he spent his whole life saying, it is written, it is written, it is written, resisting the devil, telling him, it is written in God's word. I'm not going to give in because this is what God's word says. It is written, it is written, it is written so that One time on the cross, he could say, now it is finished. I've completed the work that my father sent me to do. I made it by the word of God and the spirit of God. Numerous times throughout his life, he said, it is written so that he could say, it is finished one time. What does it mean that it is finished? It means that Jesus paid it all. It means that Jesus obeyed for you. It means that Jesus lived the life that you could never live. And he died the death that you deserve. And if you trust in him, you are now blameless in God's eyes. You have his perfect record. You are justified by faith. You are declared righteous. So when Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross, he was saying, 
that he loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. He was saying that he will never be finished with you. No matter what you do or how far you run from him or what you're feeling or what you're just ashamed of. He says, I will never stop loving you because of those things. It is finished means that God loves you. And so this is your record now, Christian. If you're trusting in Jesus alone, you're saying, I'm not good enough. I need somebody else to do it for me. I'm trusting in him, him alone. If that's you, Christian, your record now, in God's eyes, God looks at you, looks up your name, if you will, and says, oh, this one's completely obeyed the law of God. Yep, never sinned. Next name, that guy, yep, never sinned. God knows it. You know what I mean, though. Doesn't have to look it up. But in God's eyes, it means you have done what Jesus did his entire life. Isn't that amazing? What Jesus did his entire life, resisting temptation, having a perfect life of never sinning, when you believe in him, that life of his gets credited to your account. And your sin goes to him on the cross. And when God sees you now, he says, you're perfect. You're perfect. I read part of the Heidelberg Catechism in the prayer earlier. Let me read it again to you. How are you right with God? How are you right with God? Are you right with God this morning? How are you right with God? Let let me answer that for you, okay? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, does your conscience accuse you of sin? Can't believe you did that. Does the devil come to you and say, I can't believe you gave in again? You said you were never going to do it. You swore it off. You promised. You're like, I'm never doing it again. And like 30 minutes later, you did it again. Does your conscience accuse you? Does the devil come and just hound you? It continues. Even though my conscience accuses me and of never having kept any of them, and even though I'm still inclined toward all evil, and even though in reality we haven't really kept God's law, because if you break one law, you break it all, don't you? You sin once and you're ruined. And even though I am still inclined toward all evil, are you still inclined towards evil things? Yeah, we all are, aren't we? We're not just inclined, we actually crave it and want it. But even even that, even though our conscience accuses us, even though we really haven't kept God's law, even though our hearts crave evil, nevertheless, and what a beautiful word that is, nevertheless. I might get it tattooed on my arm. I was just struck by it this morning. Nevertheless, in spite of all that stuff, Benji, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. So when he gives you Christ's righteousness, it's as if you've never sinned. Can you believe that? It's as if you have never been a sinner. And as if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. So when his righteousness comes to you, it's as if you were perfectly obedient like Jesus was for 33 years. All I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. You just hold out the empty hands of faith and say, if you're giving out Jesus' righteousness 
to poor wretched sinners whose consciences afflict them and who are drawn to evil all the time. If you're giving out his righteousness and you'll take that, I'll take his righteousness. That's faith in Jesus. That's coming and saying, you want to do this trade? Look at me. I'm hideous. Look what I think and say and do. And you want this, God? And you'll give me Jesus' righteousness? I don't want to mess up the deal, but it kind of sounds like you're not getting a good deal here. Like, I'm the only one who benefits from it. But he does benefit from it because it makes his heart swell, if you will, with gladness and love and compassion. Anytime a sinner comes and says, I'll take Jesus' righteousness, I'll trade you that for all of my junk so that I can be clean. And you just accept it with the empty hands of faith. It's a gift. You can't earn it. It just comes to you. And you just say, thank you. And if that's you, then now your record says perfect. Your record now says blameless. Your record now says forgiven. Because God loves us with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love, His son Jesus experienced the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever temptations of Satan, and he never gave in. That's what Jesus experienced in the incarnation. The devil tried as hard as he could to get Jesus to sin, but he failed. And so it's no surprise then that now the devil comes to us with never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever temptations so that he can get us to sin. And so then he can then come back and remind us of our sin. He lays it out there and says, don't you want it? It's so good. And we're like, it does look good. He's like, come on and just take it. Take a bite. It's good. And you taste it and you're like, it is good. And then he comes back later and he says, I can't believe you did that, you weak Christian. I thought you loved Jesus and you just gave. I just hang. I didn't even really get it out of the package yet. And you were like, give me, give me, give me. And he comes back to us after just laying it out and tempting us. And he says, here it is. And then he turns around and he says, how dare you? Do you think Jesus wants you now? So now we are on the receiving end of nonstop assaults from Satan, reminding us of our sins and failures. And so what do you do when Satan tempts you to despair like that? And he tells you of all the stuff that you've done. What do you do when the devil tempts you to despair by telling you of the guilt within? You go to the gospel. You run to it. You run to Jesus, your great high priest, because he's sympathetic and merciful and compassionate and he cares. And then you sing, as we often sing here, these words. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do you do then? When he comes with all that stuff, what do you do? When he shows up with your internet history, what do you do? Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, he's just, he's a just God. He's satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So great was the work of Christ that God can look at Jesus and say, You have sinned against my holiness and my righteousness. But the work of my son is so incredible and perfect that I am willing as a just God to look at that and say, 
I'll pardon you because of my son. So look upward and see him there who made an end of all your sin because the sinless Savior died. Your sinful soul is counted free. Here's what you got to do today. You just got to walk in that freedom. Enjoy that freedom. You're free. Go live like it. And when the devil comes around to you, just do this. Just tell him, shut up, devil. I'm forgiven. And you walk away with a little bit of swagger in your step. When he comes with that record of wrongs, you just say, shut up. I'm united to Christ. I'm forgiven. He made an end of all my sin. Why are you, why are you bringing it up? Listen, Martin Luther said, only the devil brings up forgiven sin. Okay, just tell him to shut up and then turn around and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for all that you are for me. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so overwhelmed at how good and merciful and kind and gracious you are. That You would humble yourself, condescend to people like us, Lord, living in the pig pen of sin, the filth of the world on the alleyways and the dark nights of the city doing God knows what and you would come down to save people like us. Oh Lord, that you would save me. We just thank you. We thank you for your perfect life, your perfect death, your resurrection and triumphing over Satan, sin, death, the grave, your ascension, to God's right hand, where now you're our high priest. You represent us to God. And you're coming again one day in your second advent, and you will make all these sad things come untrue. And then we will just party and celebrate with you on the new earth forever and ever. We'll be like little children holding hands, dancing in circles, just rejoicing in what you have done. So, May you receive all the glory we ask in your name. Amen.